0: As we get started this morning, I have one brief editor's comment to make, and that was just to warn the audience that would be listening. As I was working on this text this week, I oftentimes said Oprah, where I meant to say Orpa. So I know that that could probably occur during this time, so I'm just going to get it out of the way now. If I call her Oprah several times, just move on. No, I've, I know I'm making that mistake. Maybe I won't, but I'm giving it to you up front. As we come back to our time in Ruth together, we have so far made our way through most of chapter 1, noting Naomi's response to God's heavy hand of providence upon her family's life. We know of Naomi at this point as we join back in the story. Again, not to judge as outsiders looking into Naomi's life, but as those who also share the marks of humanity and we share in the shoes, the difficulty, the challenges that Naomi is facing. That is, as we see, we would feel much like Naomi. At times in our lives, we do feel like Naomi. Naomi. Naomi is a woman by the midsection of chapter one, clearly by the end of chapter one. Naomi is a woman who is overwhelmed with grief and pain. I had time this week to go and visit my folks, and um, they are, many of you have asked about them during my mother's um, recovery from cancer surgery and how they're doing, and able to go and visit them. She's been hospitalized a handful of times, uh, post-surgery, and they're not exactly sure as to why and what is all taking place. So I was able to go up there and to visit, and I think that put this text a little bit more perhaps into context for me um, to share with you. Uh, Naomi's situation and the difficulty of those who are in the midst of what would be an emotionally spinning tornado, a time of great turbulence, a time of uncertainty, where there is pain, there is grief, they're feeling overwhelmed by providence, unable to determine the providence, and the frustration that comes with all of us as we wish to unwind that providence for the sake of one another for the sake of encouragement, to speak into that spinning tornado and make it plain. And so we all cheerfully move on, because we now know exactly why this has befallen someone. We know exactly what the Lord is doing in its hidden providence. We can answer it all, and yet we come back and we see we actually can't answer that. We can't make the hidden providence plain. When we look at Naomi's situation, it's the same. Again, we're not readers who stand and analyze, shame on you, Naomi. We stand and realize, I've been in a predicament like that. Perhaps you this morning are in a predicament like that where situations feel overwhelming. Unfortunately, when that takes place, that dark cloud of providence does gather over our head Unfortunately, oftentimes when that occurs, our humanity emerges. That is, we begin judging God's work that is mysterious because of several besetting reasons about our humanity. One, we're impatient. One, we're nervous. We lack courage. We're deeply concerned. And what we do then oftentimes is add up the providence. We add up the providential evidence and we determine the sum of To be something in error. In other words, if we join with Naomi, she has added up the providential evidence. One plus one equals two. That simply must be what God is doing. There's no other way to receive it. Look at chapter one, if you're there, just briefly and verse 19. This stuck out to me, too, in my time reading the text, beginning in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, this is the portion that stuck out to me a little bit more so this time. The whole town was stirred because of them. Interesting. uh, Naomi's plight and coming back home and Uh, We don't know exactly the expansion of what it means by the whole town, but indeed, there was a lot of buzz surrounding Naomi's return. And As Naomi's coming into town, she also, a woman overwhelmed with grief, has added up the providential evidence, but the town doesn't know that yet. As they gather, the buzz is about, is that Naomi? Where is Elimelech? And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And again, I think due to circumstance, this text has softened for me as I read it and join with Naomi in the plight of the challenge of providence being indeterminate and heavy and hard to bear. And speaking with one, it wasn't that the Lord is not sovereign. And Naomi recognizes the same fact. You remember in earlier portions of chapter 1, she recognized the Lord is, and even here, He's almighty. He is sovereign. He is absolute. He can do anything. That's not necessarily exciting for me, however. Do you see how that can be true of us? It's not that we don't know that the Lord can do something the fear sets in, we're concerned with what it is he may do. And at that time, because providence is so heavy in the hand of the Lord so heavy, it's not that we don't think he can act. We know he can bring bread to Bethlehem. We know he can save. We know he can take it away. We know he can lift this burden. We know that he can make his plan clear. But will he? And what furthermore will we endure? And the Lord becomes to each of us in those times of difficulty, not so much a high tower of refuge, but an ominous threat. Not can he? But I just, I wonder what will he Require, and sometimes we simply judge the providence to be it must be judgment. This morning's text a little looks a little bit closer, however, as we join in the narrative yet again. How tragedy we might say, or maybe that's uh, if we put it into more. Um, Uh, plain clothing for each of us, we might not say the term tragedy, but here in the text it is tragic, maybe we would put it even into terms of difficulty or um, an unpredictable context that we face in our lives, how those situations work to expose, not just as in the case of Naomi, a weakness of our faith, it is present We've seen it. It is present. Even here, Naomi recognizes, though it is bitter, it is the Lord who is at work. There is a faith that is present, but it is severely weakened. Yet, another will enter into those same circumstances or circumstances that are parallel and deeply difficult. And there will be yet, perhaps, a graver exposure, a darker exposure. And that is not the weakness of one's faith, but how difficulty functions to expose the absence of our faith. That which perhaps we just presume, that which we think by way of associating ourselves with the church or that by which we think by associating ourselves with those we deem to be strong in faith, that singular providence, that singular tragedy, or that singular difficulty works as a sense of a point of exposure of our own heart, not the corporate heart we share in with someone else. Of our own faith and its true object. Not the corporate faith that we confess in the corporate church. But our own individual faith. Where does it rest? Where is it anchored? What or whom is its object? As we join the story of Naomi with her two daughter-in-laws. If you look quickly in the text, we see that there are a bit there in chapter 1 it's kind of framed this way. This is how I'm looking at it from the end of verse 9. So um, I'm kind of, the the narrator has has kind of framed this particular scene at the end of verse 9 with the words, uh, or the last little bit of what's taking place with the women. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. Now, Then there's a little bit more dialogue, and then you get back down to the second portion of the frame, and that is verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And then you have two things occur. That is, you have these individual women at the end of verse 14 um, responding to this situation. In other words, if you take the frame of their weeping episode, or their weeping scenario in this episode, combined with yet again another weeping uh, exchange, lifting up their voices and crying out, that frames how we are to read this portion of the narrative. They are, if I could make it a bit more clear, Naomi is with her two daughters in law. And the writer has positioned them, as we read the narrative, into a type of crossroads. They are, maybe we would call it, at uh, a fork in the road. And we're into, this is indicated to us by the weeping, by the crying yet again. It's clear at the end of verse 14, decisions need to be made. I don't know if it's too fanciful for us to consider. I don't really know the typography of exactly where they were in Moab at the time. Or exactly, you know, in my mind, I'm picturing at the end of verse 14, as they're, as they're in dialogue through the portion of chapter 1, here they are as Naomi lays bare the facts, and the three women are together, and they're sobbing, they're crying, they're lifting out their voices. I'm thinking... I don't know, in my mind, I picture three women here standing in kind of a desert-style landscape. And you're there, and you're weighing out the consequences, the decisions of going to Bethlehem. Naomi clearly is going to Bethlehem. I'm going back. Orpah is hearing the information of going back. Ruth is there as well, we must not forget. She is hearing the same information that Orpah is hearing. And they're at a fork in the road. I don't know there was a sign that pointed this way to Moab and this way to Bethlehem. But you get the idea. A decision needs to be made. Are you staying or are you going? And they know that this is the situation time make the decision because they're weeping all three of them they know we need to make a decision this morning i'd like to consider in our time this kind of fork in the road experience perhaps you can unite your heart to this text maybe you are at one of those in your own life right now a kind of providential fork in the road a decision needs to be made I need to make up my mind. I need to, as we heard in Luke, put my hand to the plow. And stop turning around. I need to just, I'm here at this moment. And I want to draw our attention to this moment for Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. You have them now in your mind, right? All three women standing with the desert air blowing. There's sand in the air And they're weeping and crying, standing at the road. Are you going this way, or are you going this way? And they're all crying, because they know they have to go one way. A decision needs to be made. And I want to draw our attention through this scenario to Orpah's weighing of the facts and its final consequence for Orpah. There are the three women analyzing considering and weighing the move to Bethlehem. What further stands out is the risk involved, the consequences for each in this move to Bethlehem. I have one controlling, or maybe we would call it probing. I don't know if it will probe you very deeply, I hope. But one controlling question for us as we consider Orpah's weighing of the facts and its final consequence for her will she go to Bethlehem? The question is this, and I think this is the narrator inviting us into the story as we consider this fork in the road experience. We've seen it once, but it goes deeper yet. The question is this what are the consequences, and I'm asking you this as the listener. And I think we're prompted to ask this by the narrator. So I think we're going to see deeply within the text, this is what he has written to confront you. What are the consequences to judging God's work in our lives by common sense? What are the consequences to judging God's work in our lives by common sense? Oftentimes, we think of common sense as a virtue. Indeed, if we look in the marketplace, many of you at school or at work find common sense of what used to be considered common sense among human beings is somewhat in short supply. But there is a danger to being doubly gifted in what is known as common sense. So I'm asking that we would probe together what are the consequences then if our mode of operation is sheer common sense. Are there consequences? Sure, we have always noted the, the good ones. You don't jump out in front of a moving vehicle. Common sense has taught you that. Great. Preservation of self. But is that the sum total of common sense? That it is fitting it is proper it is always to be the believer's mode of operation you won't go wrong if you just sum total the facts as you see them is that what we call wisdom i want to probe this question out as we look at naomi but more importantly as we consider orpah now, as we consider Orpah in the text, we don't have a lot, uh, a lot being said about Orpah, but we do recognize, as I've laid out for you, in verse 14, she is standing there, in the na- and the narrative is going to take a dramatic right turn right after verse 14 and 15. It's going to hard right on us, bank and turn. So we know that 14, verse 14 is a central piece to the narrative that we as readers are to digest and digest very slowly And very well. Now, as we come to Orpah there in verse 14, we must be careful not to judge Orpah. And maybe in prior readings we have, we've simply scurried through or we've heard the Bible lesson in Sunday school at some point, or maybe not. We've passed by it for some of you. Maybe I'll repeat your already mature analysis, perhaps. But we must be careful not to see Orpah Villainously. Oftentimes we jump to Ruth. What you're thinking, are you ever going to get to Ruth? We will. We will. But Ruth shines because of the contrast between Orpah and Naomi. You can't skip Naomi and Orpah. Or you appreciate Ruth, but you don't see her beauty shine. Because it's directly set in contrast with Orpah and Naomi. But we must not be careful, or we must be careful not to judge Orpah as a villain. One writer mentions it this way. If we were directors in a screenplay, and we were standing back casting actresses for Orpah, we would simply look at the crowd that is shown, and we would immediately pick the person who is seen simply externally as the most untrustworthy and suspicious character from the beginning so who's going to be orpah in here Mm, that person looks doubly untrustworthy them that's how we're reading the narrative because orpah is one who we would might say i don't know my dad used this expression maybe it will fall flat upon you as listeners Often what my dad probably used, colloquialisms probably would. But that is, maybe you've heard the expression, I would not trust her for as far as I could throw her. That's the idea of Orpah. We know that something's up with Orpah. We're all together, we can feel it, we're weeping, we're sobbing, and we look over at Orpah and she's a bit stoic. There's something that is not with us on. So we might say, she was that way from the beginning. You just missed it. You didn't see who she really was. Orpah is a plant of unbelief. You should have seen it and know it. And we say, okay, then that is how we read the text. Shame on Orpah. Good riddance. Way to go, Ruth. However, this would not be a fair reading of the text. Of the way our narrator frames. in even Naomi's own words regarding Orpah. So take a moment with me and just consider that we would be fair to Orpah, and then by being fair with the text, we'd see what role Orpah serves us. What is the question that nags at us through Orpah? It's not a dismissive spirit. Who cares? You could tell she was a fair weather fan from the beginning. That is not the case, and that is not our treatment. It would be unfair. There's a bigger question for us regarding Orpah in each of our lives. Consider first the way that she is framed from the very beginning. Is number one, she is immediately moving with Naomi wherever Naomi goes. Look in verses 6 through 8 as we recall some of this text earlier, verse 6. Then she arose, that is Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they all, they together, went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And then Naomi begins dialoguing with them as they are following her. Orpah is not a fair-weather fan. She was there. In Moab, when her husband also had died, Elimelech is gone. So too are the two sons of Naomi. Orpah is with her, going through the grieving process with Naomi. And it's time to move, ladies, to Bethlehem. And Orpah gets up and sees her future is with Naomi. So for us to quickly dismiss Orpah would not be fair. Secondly, consider in the passage as we view the character of Orpah to see what happened to Orpa. What happened? Because number two, she is having to repeatedly be told to stop following Naomi. This happens five times throughout this text. Five times. She is told, don't follow me. Stop. No, I'm insistent. I am going with you. Again, as Naomi reads the tea leaves, she's getting up. She's moving forward. And it's like she's sitting there. Here's Orpa with Ruth that we all know. So also Orpah. She stands up. It's a collective we. We are going to Bethlehem. And she's, being having, she's having to be told five times, stop following me. Orpah is not a Fairweather fan. Number three, as we look through the text also, beyond the five times that she is told to return and stop coming toward Bethlehem number three she is weeping as we have seen in the text she is weeping and crying out for Naomi I highlighted that by the frame of the passage at the beginning verse nine the Lord grant you here is Naomi giving a blessing again to the daughters-in-law the Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of your husband then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept And again, verse 14, they lifted up their voices and they wept. Don't scurry off and say, that's Ruth, it's Orpah. Do you wonder what happened to her? Because again, she is not the sneaky, suspicious person we want to label her to be. She's just showing her true colors. It's deeper than that. Orpah loved Naomi. And this brings us to the fourth highlight, if we are to be fair to the woman, Orpah, and how we are to read Orpah, and Orpah indeed confronts each and every one of us. And that is, Naomi's own testimony is that she blesses Orpah for being two things. Number one, for being a good wife. She was a good wife to her son. And she is unto her a loyal daughter-in-law. So if we were to say Orpah, again, is sneaky and suspicious. She was good. It was just a matter of time. We better step back. We are at odds even with Naomi's own testimony who knew Orpa well. She had watched Orpah be a wife to her son. And Naomi blesses her. She sees Orpah wanting to come with her and make Naomi's hard providence her own. And Naomi sees it that way and blesses her for being loyal. Again, as she prays the Lord's blessing upon her, I'll join with that text simply by looking at verse 8. As we recall, as Naomi highlights the blessing that Orpah has been and continues to be. Verse 8, but Naomi said to her, Two daughters-in-law, not just Ruth, to two of them present. Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, that is, the young men, their husbands. Orpah was a good wife. And she has dealt kindly with me. The end of verse 8. She further blesses Orpah. She doesn't look upon her as sneaky, suspicious, or really wanting to get out. She says, the Lord, Orpah, grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, again, for what she thought to be the last time, and they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, no, again, not just Ruth, but Orpah, no, We will return with you to your people. We're coming, Naomi. You can't get rid of us that easy. But Naomi insisted. No, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husband's? so on and so forth through the text by the time we get to verse 14 there they are at a fork in the road in sum I want to paint a fair picture of Orpah as I think the narrator is pointing each of us to examine in the light of our own walk with the Lord that is Orpah is not a villainous woman Who was sneaky from the beginning. And now here it is. She is bearing out who she always was. You know they have the family get togethers. And Orpah was not joking quite as thoroughly as Ruth was. She could sense there was something up with Orpah. Perhaps she didn't bring the right dish. Maybe it was that she never cooked at all for the family. And was that passive participant you know, that shady character at the family gathering. We have no reason to pigeonhole Naomi into that or Orpah into that role. By all accounts from the text, she is a loyal and loving woman. So the question that emerges at this point for us as we join into the second portion of our time together, and that is, well, then what's the problem? If, if this picture of Orpah, that on all accounts, as Naomi herself utters and blesses in a prayer, is that you are loyal to my son and to me. You have fulfilled all of your covenantal obligations to your mother-in-law. All of them. You're a lovely daughter-in-law. Hopefully we have some of those in here. The lovely daughter-in-laws. You know, the relationships at times can be tentious between the mom and the daughter-in-law. But not for Orpah. So what's the problem then? What happened to Orpah? Loyal, loving, wanting to share in Naomi's hurtful providence, putting her, her stock with Naomi. What happened? What was the problem? And the answer that emerges from the text is this. Naomi tells Orpah to count the cost. Naomi begins to speak to Orpa, who is loving and loyal and willing. And Naomi tells her, come to your senses, Orpah. Add up the providence like I have. Look at it through similar lenses. One plus one, Orpah. Turn and go back. What do I mean as Naomi encourages her to count the providential numbers? Well, that would mean, as Naomi has made clear, these simple four things. Number one, for Orpah. This is what Naomi is telling her to remember. Remember. Where she says, no, no, turn back. Go back, my daughters. Go your way. That's what happened. Orpah's here and she's hearing from Naomi. She's being called to remembrance. If you go to Bethlehem, you are going to risk. You are going to risk having A husband. As you see there. They said no. We're going to go with you. She said no. Why? Have I yet sons in my womb. That they may become your husbands. Orpah. Hear me out. If you go to Bethlehem. You will risk the cornerstone of stability. Add up the providence. One plus one equals two. Orpah. Ruth, wake up! If you have no husband, as we recall from Sermon 1, if you have no husband, you have no protection. Do you see how this is beginning, Orpah is beginning to confront us? Do you see her character is emerging to confront us. No, 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 we stand and we judge Orpah. Wait, wait, we can't. Because the narrator is using Orpah to turn the light on us. Where are we at? In the common sense calculations. Because Naomi has already calculated. She's encouraging Orpah to calculate the same. If you don't have a husband, you will have no protection. Number three, if you do not have a husband, you risk having no finances. How many of us already think about the worry and the concern over finances? Orpah, do not cast your lot with me. If you go back, you risk having a husband. You might not have one. You will therefore not have protections. You will not have finances. You will not have an inheritance. Hear me out. Naomi said, turn back. Why will you go? I don't have any more sons. Turn back. Go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore still wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No. No. No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. In other words, essentially it is as if Naomi is saying to Ruth and to Orpah, if you come with me to Bethlehem, you will end up being like me in Bethlehem. Naomi says, think about it just for a moment. Calculate the providential hands here. Remember, they're at a crossroads. Here they're all weeping, they're crying together. Naomi has told her, you're at a crossroads, a fork in the road. A decision needs to be made. And Orba says, let's go. And she says, no, think about it. Analyze your situation Add up what's tangible and knowable, concrete and measurable. That's where strength is found. That's where clarity is brought to these mysteries. Add up what is tangible. And cast your life with it. Think about it for a moment, Naomi says. This is the final thought I put on the lips of Naomi. As Ruth is standing present equally as Orpah. She looks at the two of them at this crossroads moment. Here they stand. The sand is blowing. They're all weeping. And she looks at the two of them and says, what future is there for two Moabite childless widows in Judah? What? You tell me. The answer is nothing. You have no future. Particularly if you attach your wagon to me. I would persuade you to remember that Orpah has put forth a pattern, so has Ruth, and we'll look at Ruth. I think we'll talk about Ruth. Next week. Remember the pattern that is emerging here. Uh, Orpah has said, No, I will follow you. This is a parallel pattern, I would persuade you, as was read for you earlier in Luke 9. Where the comment of two and three witnesses as we read about the gospel call, as it goes forward, it is, I will follow you. I will follow you. You're the Lord. I'll follow you. The Lord also urges. There is a cost involved. There is a cost to simply uttering words, I will follow you. It will cost you possibly everything. Here they stand at a crossroads, some with wanting to bury dead, some with wanting to continue with family, some just simply wanting to say goodbye, some asking further questions. And the Lord is prompt to say, looking back is longing to go back. follow is to forsake. Christ teaches in that gospel call. Some are eager indeed, even like Orpah, where this tragedy exposes yet an absence of faith. Christ is teaching at that same fork in the road to each and every one of us this morning that following him, will require sacrifice of that which seems to be most stable. I'm eager. I'm coming. You don't get it. And perhaps Naomi is not the greatest of agents at the time to so persuade her away from going to Bethlehem and push her away from Judah. But indeed, she is used. For there is a cost to following Christ. There is a cost to lay hold of his promises by faith. It isn't simply, I will follow you. And it's really about I and me. Because I have calculated, I will find immediate advantage. So goes the social gospel, or what we call, I guess, is now the prosperity gospel. A declaration of, I will follow you. And it is more about the I in so doing than the following of you as Lord. I heard that for 59 95 I'll have an immediate turnaround and pledge. And the I is indeed about I. In the following, much more than the call of the one who is the you to which I have pledged. The pattern that emerges here with Orpa is the same. That indeed each one of us come to various points in tension through providence in our own lives as we calculate the next decisions that need to be made as a family. The next decisions we need to be making as singles. The next decisions we need to make regarding our children. The next decision we need to make about our careers. All of us. And there is a requirement of sacrifice that attends to the submission unto Christ. The Lord in Luke 9 urges them that it might cost them their homes. I will follow you to Jerusalem. I'm I'm letting you know, getting to Jerusalem will cost you everything. The Lord, there moving toward Jerusalem, knows it will cost him everything. To another, it will cost him his family. To some of us, in the call of the gospel unto Christ to follow him by faith, indeed we feel the weight of it costing us our families. It'll cost us boyfriends and girlfriends. It will cost us to live by faith in our own personal economy or economics of our provisions and our care. The call is a heavy one that is more about the you than the I. To be clear, it isn't a law of sacrifice that each one must give their home. Each one must give their family. Each one must give their money if they really want to believe in the Lord. That isn't a law that the Lord is laying down in Luke 9. And it isn't the call that if Naomi, if Orpah would so rightly perceive that if I give up my hope for a husband... I then can be saved. It isn't a law. It is a test of idolatry. We know this parallel pattern yet again our Lord teaches. Uh, perhaps we will be able to look there briefly next week. And that is the rich young ruler. It isn't a new law that is demanded. But it is a test of of idolatries. The question that then continues, if I were to boil it down and zero in now, more particularly to each one of us, I ask you, as I would ask of myself, and I don't think this is necessarily a one-time story for a single fork in the road. There are, as we all know, providential forks in the road or crossroads in our own lives that seem to be at every pass. Man, do we wish the highway to heaven was straight. But we're forced again and again as the Lord confirms his covenant with us. He touches upon our heart and its idols regularly and we are prompted by his spirit to ask what would you do Adam without your possessions what would you do without the provisions of security that they give at the end of the episode then Orpah, who indeed is loving and loyal, has a point of exposure. The influence of the facts before her brings about a sad end for Orpah. So too I press, before we conclude, it will have a sad, consequential end upon each and every one of us. Adding up the facts by common sense is where we find our refuge, where we find our faith in other objects, whether it be home, family, or personal economy, or education. It'll be a sad consequence. Because as we know here, as we wind down in conclusion, ORPA decides. In this Fork Road experience, the three women here crying with the sand blowing in the background, unless it's too dramatic for you. I just envision it that way. You know I tend to be on the dramatic side. Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah hearing the same evidence. And Orpah takes Naomi's worldly analysis and advice. When she hears, you will risk having a husband. And you know what that means. She, like the rich young ruler, went away sorrowful. Two things are commented about Orpah at the end of this episode, and we never hear of Orpah again. That is verse 14 when she heard the facts of the case, when she recognized it's better to be wise in this age than foolish by faith. You're right. I need a husband. You're right, Orpah. You're right, Naomi. I I need provisions. You're right, Naomi. The cost to give up that which is tangible, to lay hold of that which is unknown, is not a wise calculation. She probably said it while she was weeping, verse 14. They lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Verse 15, Naomi then responded to Ruth, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. As we heard again, we never hear from Orpa, but the sad end and the consequence that it brought. That she went back to her gods. By judging providence with common sense, apart from faith. By looking back, she was longing to go back, and she did. Paul reminds us, and this is what I conclude with. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 3.18. This is my last word to you this morning. I pray that you will consider. Orpa, the cost of discipleship. The consequence that comes with judging the Lord's providence by common sense. And it is this warning from Paul. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. Let's pray. Father, we just ask...